Would you like to pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you sow your word and we acknowledge that we can't make our hearts supple recipients of it on our own. But if you could bring water out of a rock, you certainly can soften our rocky hearts so that they now, as you taught in the parable, Lord, can receive and that the word can take root and grow up and bear much fruit. So please do this now as we hear from the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, people around the world are mourning the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Maybe you are too. She reigned for 70 years as the British monarch and passed away this last week. She led through times of great change in the world. She was a, a personal friend of Billy Graham and the other pastor, John Stott, that many of us know and love, and she was herself a lifelong Christian. As I was uh, reading articles about her and her life this week, I came across a debate. And it's a debate about the ongoing role of the British monarchy. And as one, as one columnist put it, is the British monarchy a relic or is it relevant? And even though millions of people still love the royal family and tune in to their weddings and coronations and even their family drama, and they tune in with all, the commentators, many seem to suggest that in reality, the, the kingship, the monarchy is really about ceremony and, and symbolism and nostalgia. There's no real power there. The British monarch used to have absolute power, but now is nothing more than a ceremonial head of state. And this notion of, of kingship or, or monarchy in name only, this notion of, of kingship without real power, it, it made me think of a theme or it made me think of a criticism that's leveled at Jesus. The theme of kingship pervades Jesus' ministry. His first public words as he comes into Galilee, as Mark records them, find him preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus taught that the kingdom of God was arriving with and through him. But for many observers of his life in the first century, there was confusion, even doubt and skepticism as to the actual reality or power of this so-called kingdom. And questions came from all sides. Midway through his ministry, his own cousin John the Baptist sends a delegation to him asking, are you the one that was to come or are we to wait for another? Because it doesn't look like what we thought it would look like. Then during his trial, the governor of Rome, Pontius Pilate, stands before Jesus, a man torn between curiosity and cynicism, and he says, are you a king? 
And then Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, he finds walking in front of him scribes and Pharisees who mockingly cry out, he saved others. He cannot even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And even after his resurrection, after he had been resurrected from the dead, and after all he had done, he gathers his disciples together, and they still do not understand the nature of his kingdom. They ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, you just don't understand. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God, and this kingdom, this announcement carried with it expectations. But instead of conquering Rome, Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. And instead of liberating Israel from her enemies, Jesus leaves Israel in a place where just decades after his life, Rome will burn her temple to the ground, crushing her. And yet... People kept calling Jesus Christos, Christ, which means anointed one, which means king. Jesus Christ, Jesus the king. They kept saying it. And Christians kept insisting that somehow in and through Jesus, the kingdom of God was here. Now, many people now, even as they did then, they look upon this so-called kingdom with cynicism. They watch the grand institutions of the church. They look at what she does as she gathers. They watch the church singing, crown him with many crowns, and they laugh. It's nothing more than ceremony, symbolism, and nostalgia. There's no real power there. And even, even we, as Christians, individually, we can wonder about the kingdom, maybe not cynically, but in the area of doubt. We look around the world, and we look at our own lives, and maybe privately and maybe quietly, don't, don't you ever find yourself looking up at the king and saying, why don't you come down? Like, come down off the cross and help. Look at the world. You've had 2,000 years. We wonder this too. Is it a kingdom in name only? Are these just ceremonies? Is this just symbolism? Are we playing a game? Is there anything, is there any power behind this so-called king and kingdom? Now, questions about Jesus' kingdom started during his own ministry. And he addressed them. He didn't dodge them. And today I'm going to take you in to a scene in Mark 4 where Jesus is addressing his kingdom. And he's telling parables to explain what it's like. And here in Mark 4, we're going to note two things about the kingdom of God according to Jesus. We'll see the kingdom's mystery. There's a mystery to it. And then we'll see the kingdom's power. There actually is a power to it. And then having looked at that with Jesus' teaching on the kingdom, we're going to follow him. We're going to move through the rest of his life, through the crucifixion and resurrection, and we're going to stop then at the ascension. Because when Jesus ascends to heaven, this is another part of the Christian belief that Jesus ascended to heaven, it's essentially his enthronement. 
Rather than being enthroned on earth, he's enthroned at the right hand of God. And so Jesus right now is reigning. So we want to ask the final question, well, what are you doing in your current reign? Where does your current reign show up on earth? Is there anywhere I can see it? Is there anywhere I can touch it? And with that, we're going to move into the question of the relationship between this so-called kingdom and the church. So if roadmaps are helpful for you, we're going to look at the mystery and the power and the embassy of the kingdom of God, according to Jesus. So first, the kingdom's mystery. In Mark 4, we, want to have, we have one of, the most, one of the densest accounts of the content of Jesus' teaching in Mark. And he's teaching about the kingdom, and he associates the kingdom of God, and this is very strange, but he associates the kingdom of God with secrecy. He says to his close followers, this is in Mark 4, verse 11. He says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Now, the term secret could also be translated as mystery. And what it means in its biblical usage is essentially that Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God, it's not something that that you can understand or enter in your own reason or by your own power. But it's a mystery in the sense that God must reveal it to you and bring you into it. That's what a mystery means. It's both something that's been concealed, but something that God wants to reveal. And Jesus, in fact, in this teaching is doing just that. He's trying to explain more of the nature of the kingdom to his disciples. And to do so, he uses parables. So, you know, if you read through the Gospels, you find Jesus all the time saying things like he does in verse 26. He says, the kingdom of heaven is as if. Or like he says in verse 30, to what will you compare the kingdom of God? He's always saying things like, the kingdom of God is like this. He uses similes, metaphors, analogies. And we do, we do this too. When, when you're having trouble explaining something to someone, you make a move. You go, okay, it's like this. And you reach for something concrete and simple to help them understand it. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And, and, and from this, we just need to notice the first clear point that we just can't miss. The, the kingdom of God requires so much explanation because it does not meet human expectations. You don't need to explain something that's obvious or happens according to expectations, but Jesus is constantly explaining what the kingdom of God is like because it doesn't meet expectations. And there were expectations about it in the first century. The language of kingdom, for Jesus first hears it, it carried certain expectations. And you know, there's one time in the Gospel of Mark later where we actually hear the crowds themselves talking about the kingdom, and it's during Jesus' triumphal entry. You know, celebrated on Palm Sunday, he's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. The crowds gather around, they're waving palm branches. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and blessed is the kingdom of our father, David. Now that's crucial. The kingdom for them is the throne of David, which is a geopolitical reality. 
And in the centuries leading up to Jesus' ministry, this kingdom of Israel, David's kingdom, had faced various forms of collapse. And in varying degrees, Israelites had been ruled by Persia, Greece, and now Rome. And Israel's prophets had foretold a time when God would send a mighty king to reestablish this throne of David, defeating Israel's enemies and inaugurating a perpetual kingdom of peace and prosperity. And now don't miss this. For many, these expectations of a kingdom involved a military uprising, a decisive defeat of Rome, and a glorious reestablishment of a geopolitical territory called the kingdom of David. The kingdom would be something that you could touch. You could run your hands along its walls. You could brag on it to your friends. And it would, if necessary, advance by the sword in glorious sight and culminate in a decisive and final victory over Israel's enemies. But Jesus uses these parables, three in particular, to try to correct expectations. And he uses parables or metaphors from the world of farming. Who wants a kingdom explained as a farmer sowing? How boring. How about bringing in gladiator or some amazing heroic story from Greece about Achilles? The kingdom of heaven is like Achilles. Man up. Instead, he talks about farming. And he likens the kingdom to farming, and he likens it to the sowing of seeds, and he says that the seeds being sown are the word. In verse 14, you can see this. It's important to know that. He explains in verse 14, the sower sows the word. Okay, so I'm going to take you through three parables. We can't go deep, but I want to show you three ways Jesus counters the expectations of the kingdom with three parables, okay? So first, the parable of the different soils. This is Mark verse 1 through 20. You're familiar with this. This is where the sower goes out, sows four types, right, or four types of soil. There's, there's the path, there's the soil where the birds come, there's the soil where the thorns come up, and then there's the good soil. What point is Jesus making? With this parable... Jesus explains the mystery of the kingdom's advance. It will advance not by wielding the sword, but by the receiving of the word deep in the heart. Second, in the parable of the hidden seed, which we heard read a moment ago, this is verse 26 through 29, the farmer sows the seeds hidden underground. No one can see it, then it grows. With this parable, Jesus explains the mystery of the kingdom's hiddenness. The kingdom is not something that unfolds in glorious sight, like a decisive victory by a glistening army in beautiful armor. It's more often hidden. It's secret. The way it works is imperceptible to the human eye. And then in the parable of the mustard seed, which you're probably familiar with, verses 30 through 32, Jesus explains the mystery of the kingdom's growth. And he says it doesn't begin with something lustrous and great. It doesn't begin with something strong and big. It begins with something small, even pathetically insignificant, like a Galilean peasant 
getting crucified by the very enemy the king is supposed to conquer, leaving a gaggle of peasants behind him and calling it a kingdom. It's like that, Jesus says. It advances by the word, not the sword. It's not in plain sight, it's hidden. And God loves to use the small and the weak. So Jesus says, do not be mistaken. There's a mystery to the kingdom. Why? Because it's God's kingdom. It's not man's kingdom. It doesn't come according to our plans or expectations. It works on a different plane to reach deeper and further, to be more subversive. And friends, we would do well to remember this because even when we come to Jesus in our lives, as many of you have, and we bend the knee of our heart and we say, okay, I surrender, you're my king. We bring our expectations. We have our list. We say, well, I tried this when I was a kid on Santa Claus. It worked okay. And now I have my grown-up list. And here it is. This is what I expect. And, um, you know, I won't tell you exactly, you know, when you have to do it. But, but I am watching the clock. <laughs> I'm paying attention, Jesus. I'm not going to live forever. Right? And so... I think Jesus is saying to all of us, this kingdom, do not judge its presence based on any of your expectations, but instead listen to him and let him invite you into a kingdom that doesn't fail your expectations, but actually explodes them. And this takes us to our second observation. If the kingdom's a mystery, and it's hidden, and it's small, and it advances by the word. Well, is it powerful? Like, is there something about it that's present and powerful? And so in our second observation, I just want to look at, from these parables, the kingdom's power. Now, the, the two parables from verses 26 to 32, the parable of the hidden seed, the parable of the mustard seed, they stress, and this may seem obvious, but don't miss it. They stress that the kingdom is really present. Yeah, it's hidden. Yeah, it's small. But don't miss this. It's here. It's present right now. And they further highlight the profundity of its power. It grows without any human aid, and it becomes the biggest plant in the garden. So it's present, and it's powerful. So let me just offer two ways I think that these parables explain just how the kingdom is so powerfully present, even in a paradoxical way. So first, it's, it's powerfully present, not in a geopolitical domain, not in material possessions, not in wins and losses. It's present in Jesus, in a person. That's its epicenter. So it shouldn't go unnoticed that the person announcing the kingdom, excuse me, that there is a person announcing the kingdom. This isn't just like tablets that come down from Mount Sinai that we read. This is a man in the flesh. And he, don't miss this, he likens his words that he's speaking to the words of the sower who's sowing the word of God. So in verse 14, Jesus tells us the sower sows the word. It's very important. Jesus doesn't often explain what parables mean. And this, is, this can be problematic because we can take a parable and we can try to make the parts mean all this crazy stuff. But it's important to notice. 
In terms of what the seeds mean, in Mark 4, they mean the word. Because we'll come in and say, well, what this means is like doing good deeds. There's nothing wrong with doing good deeds. That's not what the seeds are. The kingdom's articulate. It makes claims on people about who God is and who they are. It jams them into a corner because it's articulate. So Jesus says, the sower sows the word. Now we can infer from this that the seed sown in the hidden seed parable and the mustard seed parable are the word of God. But notice this. Mark summarizes what Jesus has been doing in verses 33 and 34. So so Jesus teaches a couple parables from verse 1 to verse 32 in Mark 4. And then in verses 33 and 34, Mark gives us a summary statement. And here's what he says. He says, this is verse 33, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. Now for the careful reader, Mark could have just said, with many such parables, he spoke to them. He could have said, with many such parables, he spoke words to them. But there's a little phrase here, it's the same in Greek, where where he says the word, and it's the same phrase that Jesus has used in verse 14 to talk about the seed being the word of God. So what Mark is saying is, Jesus is speaking as God. And his words are the beginnings of the kingdom of God. Here's, Here's a way to just think about this. So, so where is the kingdom of God present and powerful? Don't, don't look for examples in your external life. I'm not, I'm not saying they, they, they are there, but, but we'll get to that in a moment. But begin by saying that the kingdom, it's not, it's not that you're looking for like a geopolitical area of prosperity. You don't look at your bank account going up and down. It's, it's there in the presence of a person who becomes personal and in doing so begins to take more and more control of your life. Do you know in the history of the world what has proven to be the most difficult recalcitrant area of land to conquer? Do you know what's been? The human heart. It's always been the human heart. You see, kings can come and they can conquer a people and they cannot touch a young woman or young man's heart. They could play at obedience, but in their heart, spit on the king. Your spouse can't control your heart. You can't even control your heart. You ever try to tell your heart how to feel? Come on. Come on, heart. Be excited about God. You ever try to rebuke the doubts out of your heart? Just stop. Just, just don't doubt. You can't. And so Jesus arrives speaking a word that is implanted in the human heart because the human heart is the territory where the reign of God is conquering. And it has conquered billions of people. And its reign goes across every ethnic and racial boundary known to man, and it crosses every socioeconomic boundary we can imagine. It's on every continent, and it's getting close to reaching every people group. Not all, but missionaries are going at it, trying to make sure that this Jesus and his word can reach the hearts of everybody. That's what I mean when I say it's really present and really powerful. Everywhere, knees are dropping from the rich to the poor, 
from the cool kids in your school to the people that you think aren't cool. From the people that are smart to the people that you don't think are smart. From the educated, uneducated, employed, unemployed. Everywhere, knees are dropping. This morning, billions of them. From a simple word spoken by Jesus. You might think of it like this. Imagine a man commits a great crime and he's in prison. And so he's, he's completely bereft of freedom. And... And he's also imprisoned inside with anger, with regret and bitterness over what he's done. He hates the world and he hates himself and he stews in it. He's doubly in jail. And he joins a little Bible study. He's got nothing else to do. And slowly Jesus wins his heart. Slowly Jesus melts his heart. And slowly Jesus begins to reign over this little patch called this man's heart. And he releases him from the bondage of sin and bitterness and hate. He even releases them from the bondage of shame, even from the pain of regret. He says, your life still has a purpose. You haven't wasted it. And the man walks around jail as though he's free as a bird. That's how the reign of God starts. And there is not a human kingdom that can stop it. So here's how the kingdom is powerfully present. Through Jesus encountering the human heart. And in that case, it's a very deep and it's a very, very big kingdom indeed. All right, I want to move now to our um, third and final question. And so we, we've seen Jesus teaching on the kingdom and, and, and he's saying to us, look, it, it's a bit mysterious. Just please set your expectations over here and, and let me shape your expectations. And he's, he's saying, I really want to begin with your heart and I want to I I rule over it. I want to plant my flag in it. Um, what can happen here, though, is we can, we can create, if we're not careful, an, an over-spiritualized or over-privatized kingdom, right? You can say, well, all that really matters is my soul. I mean, who cares what's going on in the world out there? Do whatever you want. Like, I got Jesus in here. And I think this would be a very mistaken way to understand the kingdom, it begins on the inside, really, by fulfilling the first commandment, love God. And it moves very swiftly into the second commandment, love neighbor. And so I want to just ask now, as Jesus moves from teaching to his ascension, and he reigns now, how is he establishing his kingdom on earth? Outside of just converting souls, is there a tangible place? Where, could you point somewhere on earth and say, there's the kingdom of God? Where does it show up? Okay, so this brings us to our third point, the, kingdom, the kingdom's embassy. Now, I want to read a little scripture for you. I don't want to take too long here, but, but I want you to see, before I go any further, it's important that you see a connection between expectations about the kingdom, the ascension of Jesus, and the church. I don't want you to think I'm making this up, okay? So in the beginning of Acts, we have Jesus and he's been raised from the dead. And he's gathered his disciples and they have a conversation right before he ascends to heaven. I want you to notice that in the conversation, they bring up the kingdom of heaven, excuse me, the kingdom of God again, and they again misunderstand it. I want you to notice how he responds and what happens next. This is Acts 1, picking up at verse 6. When they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Right? Geopolitical. Are you, are, we've been waiting. You died. We got over the whole death, empty tomb thing. Is it now? Will you restore it? 
Verse 7, Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know times or season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. The kingdom's a lot bigger than the boundaries of Israel. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them from their sight. That's the ascension. So what's going on here? The disciples are still looking for a concrete kingdom. Jesus, instead of giving them that, gives them a commissioning and an empowering not to go conquer the world with swords, but to go be witnesses by the power of the word. Now, what happens next in the book of Acts? Do, do his followers go off into private ministries, solo acts? You know, they get back in their old fishing business and just share the gospel every now and then. What happens next in Acts? The birth of the church. The ascended Christ gives the spirit and it births, it births the church. And then the rest of Acts is this story about how the kingdom of God spreads through these little clusters of strange communities. Jews and Gentiles, poor and weak, men and women, young and old. These strange communities that link together and call each other family, brothers and sisters. And they begin to share and love their neighbor. And these things start cropping up by the end of Acts all the way into Rome. If you follow Paul's letters, he's got his eyes set on Spain. And so you see the link. The disciples are like, give us a kingdom right here. Jesus ascends. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm not going to take a little teeny earthly throne. I'm going to take the heavenly throne and I'm not going to call you to be political citizens of Israel. I'm going to send you across the whole globe because I have a global kingdom. That makes sense? And what shows up? Where does the kingdom show up where you can touch it? These little communities called churches. So that's the link between the kingdom, the ascension in the reigning Christ, and the local church. It's the link between everything you want to think about with the kingdom of God and your local church, the false church, Anglican. So let me just now, with the rest of our time, beg the question, ask the question, how more specifically does the reign of Jesus show up in the local church? First, the local church acts like Jesus' kingdom embassy. You, you know, um, nations and kingdoms, they, they have... Um, they have embassies, right? And, and an embassy is like a, a, king, a, a, a kingdom sending someone into a foreign land, foreign nation, and they set up a little embassy that represents that other kingdom to this foreign kingdom. And the embassies can operate and do things based on the authority of the foreign kingdom. And so they can do things like they can, they can establish and confirm citizenship. And you know, nations and kingdoms, they have a way of marking their citizens, right? passports, birth certificates. I mean, some countries and some nations have, have um, ceremonies where people swear an oath of allegiance before specific leaders. And the, the Jewish community had ways of marking citizens, circumcision, keeping the law, dietary habits. They had ways of marking out who their people are. Does the kingdom of God do this? Does it mark people out? And this is where we see the local church operating as an embassy. How does Jesus mark his citizens through this church? Baptism. 
When someone is baptized, they are marked out by God's church as his son or daughter. They're given citizenship in his kingdom. Irrespect them if they're citizens of Zimbabwe or Germany or America. Doesn't matter what citizenship card they walk in with. They're made a citizen of the kingdom of God, which then begins to outweigh any other citizenship they have. Peter and Paul will say our citizenship is in heaven. We're exiles here. So the church, it marks out citizens through baptism. It also marks out the people of God through the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper, this isn't just a private thing. You have your little spiritual connection with God. It is that. But we do it together around a common table, just like Jesus did with his disciples. Because this is saying that even though you have nuclear families, you have friendships, you have a political allegiance, you have community, sports things, you have things you're involved with, this is the community that God has made. And our fellowship around that table says we're a family. And so we are then to, in some ways you could say, through this embassy coming together in a foreign land, we preview the quality of the kingdom to come. This is why the the commands Jesus gives to love one another inside the church are so important. We are meant to preview. The Lord's Supper is kind of a, a culminating point. We're to preview what it means to belong to each other. We commit, we become members, we show up, we assemble because we are the kingdom of God on earth. So, so you could touch it. You could walk by a local church and say, that's the kingdom. And people will laugh and they'll giggle. That's pathetic. Exactly. Read the parable. That's what he said. It's going to be small. It's going to be insignificant. People will laugh. And Paul, he says to the Corinthians, God chose the weak things to build his church. Can you believe that? He says that to us. We walk in, you know, I got these degrees. Here's my job. That's not what God needs. Pride gets in the way of the kingdom of God. And the embassy, the church, marks out citizens by the preaching of the gospel. Do you know when the gospel is preached in a church, the king is exercising his authority over his people? Because this isn't my, these aren't my opinions. You do not want preachers who tell you their opinions. You desperately need to hear the word of God because it's how your king exercises both his care and authority over his kingdom. Through his word, he cares for you like a shepherd with a sheep. He guides you. He makes sure you're not becoming too much of a citizen of this world. He wants you to know you're going to be alive forever. He wants to keep you on the right path. So these are ways that the local church glistens and shines like the kingdom of God showing up right here. Yeah, it's small. It's insignificant. Most people in Washington, D.C. have not thought of the fact that we're meeting right now. Why? Because the kingdom is hidden from their eyes. But mark Jesus' words well. It will grow. And it is powerful. So, how does the church relate to the kingdom? It's its embassy. Let me just close with one final, um, one final thought. I said this at 9 o'clock and then I gave like five final thoughts. So, I'll try to, I'll try to keep this tight. Okay. The, 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 the kingdom, the embassy of the kingdom is the church. It marks out citizenship. But it, it, also, it also trains and teaches and forms ambassadors. Right? 
Like a kingdom sets up an embassy but it all, in a foreign land, but it also sends ambassadors. And we read all through, not all through, but in several places in the New Testament that, that we're ambassadors of the kingdom. So this means we need to shape one another, train one another, prepare one another to go out into the world representing the king in a foreign kingdom. And the way we do this, and this is important, one mark is we need to form ambassadors who are able to see the spiritual realities lurking behind physical needs. They don't separate the physical and the spiritual. They don't over-spiritualize, they don't over-secularize the mission, but they can discern the spiritual needs behind the physical. So, when ambassadors go out to alleviate poverty, it is not enough for them to see people's physical needs met so they prosper. Why? Because they know the parable of the rich young ruler. They're like, prosperity can keep you out of the kingdom. So yeah, here's a bunch of more bread. Here's a job. But now I want to tell you about the bread of life. They see the spiritual poverty lying behind the eyes of everyone made but cut off from the image of God. Made in the image of God but cut off from God. Second, kingdom ambassadors go out to work for social reconciliation. But it's not just for harmonious neighborhoods. It's because they eventually long to see people reconciled to God. Remember Jesus says that when he first opens up preaching about the kingdom in Mark 1, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the door into the kingdom for people. Not, not socially getting along with one another, but repenting in their heart before God, coming to believe in Jesus and being pulled into reconciliation with the Father. And so kingdom ambassadors always want both forms of reconciliation happening, horizontal and vertical. If kingdom ambassadors labor for justice for others, they can never forget that behind the eyes of every woman and every man lies a soul that will be laid bare before the judgment seat of Christ and that person will need the justification of the death of the Son of God in order to be invited into the kingdom. And so kingdom ambassadors always, always see the small and spiritual things lying behind the obvious physical things. And um, finally, let me leave you with the charge. I believe we're an embassy of the kingdom and, and God's forming us to be ambassadors. And I just want to leave you with the charge from these parables. You know, in Washington, it's typical to, to want to make a splash and, and change the world. So you pick up some of the biggest, most complicated problems you could find and you care about them. There's nothing wrong with that. Some of you may be called to big change, but don't miss the parable. The parable says, don't go big, go small. There may be something very small that's not impressive to the world that won't even meet your own expectations of what you want to see happen, but it will be a little mustard seed. It might be that you build a big company, but what God wants to do is something between you and the mailman when he walks in, and you had no idea. It may be that God wants to do something between you and a friend who you disagree with, but Aim at something small, a mustard seed. Plant it deep and pray that if God pleases, it may grow up even to become one of the biggest plants in the kingdom and many will come 
and in its branches find shade. Lord, we thank you um, that we are not part of a kingdom that is just small and earthly, that's not just as powerful as a human being's wisdom or a person's winsomeness. We thank you, Lord, that you haven't put us in a kingdom that'll die when the sun burns out like everything else, Lord, but you've called us to something lasting, eternal joy through Jesus Christ, our King. And we bow our knees afresh and say, yes, Lord, here we are, your embassy in Northern Virginia, your ambassadors, send us where you will. In Jesus' name, amen.